0: Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 22. I'll be reading a portion of that text from 1 Samuel 20, 1-17. Nope, 22, 1-17. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 245. Hear the word of the Lord. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to, there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there was with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hireth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were, who were at Nob and all them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has arisen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But none of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abithar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abithar, "I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me; do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever."
1: Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we do pray, as we sang earlier, that you would show us Christ, even in this text, Lord. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In, in a little over a year, uh, Americans will again go to the polls and cast ballots for who is going to be the president of our country for the next four years. And if you're like me, when you think about that, your stomach starts to churn a little bit uh, for a host of reasons. Not least of which means that for the next year, I know that my mailbox and my TV and if you read a newspaper or wherever you go, you're just going to see political advertisements for the next year. Everybody praising themselves, saying, this is who I am, you should, why you should vote for me as candidates try to paint, obviously, the rosiest picture of themselves and why they deserve someone's vote. Well, this this morning, we're going to see what... I think, amounts in some ways advertisements for two very different kinds of kings. These few different chapters, we're going to be looking actually at chapters 21 through 23, and these set what I think, just kind of held side by side, is one of the strongest contrasts throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel of King Saul and King David. We'll see kind of the kind of kingdom and the kind of king that Saul is. And even though david, David's david been anointed as the future king, we even just kind of get a glimpse here. He's not the king, but we do see in him the kind of king he will be, and the kind of kingdom that he's building, that God is building through him. And so throughout these couple of chapters, I want you to keep, I want you to keep one main question in your mind as we walk through these three chapters. One main question. Which king, what kind of king I want to follow or what kind of kingdom whose kingdom do I want to belong to and I don't mean that as like a theoretical if you were in Israel and you had to vote for David and Saul which one would you vote for I mean that I think this text for us is kind of lifting the veil in some ways and painting for us a picture of the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world. Uh, you think about advertisements, you can think about another kind of realm of advertising that's filled with rosy pictures. If you ever have gone to Zillow or tried to buy a house and you look through pictures of houses, every picture I look at and I'm like, that's the biggest house I've ever seen. And then you walk in it and you're like, that was a really good fisheye lens. You, even, even better, maybe you bring an inspector with you and you say all these things that were listed as good, Actually, here's all the good and the bad and the really, really ugly. This text is an inspector for us. It's going to hold out for us the true picture of King Jesus and the kingdoms of this world. Now, this, uh, as we kind of walk through, I want us to see five characteristics from these three chapters of the kind of king That we want to follow. That's going to form our outline this morning. And my prayer for us this week has been that this text would whet our appetites. That that we would want the kingdom of Christ to come soon. We would even live today as citizens of his heavenly kingdom. Now as we, as we look at this passage, this is kind of a, uh, this is members, visitors who have been coming for a while. If you're here for the next several weeks, just know we're covering like two to three chapters a week. It's a lot of text, so I'm gonna be reading some, I'm gonna be summarizing some. You'll be helped. If you read the text in advance, that's just, uh, spend a little time in the text and I promise it'll pay dividends as we come to Sunday mornings. Uh, you can find the text for next week if you have a sermon note guide. I try to put that on the bottom there just so throughout the week if you want to see what we're looking at next week, it's there. So you can look at that this coming week. But this week as we look at these three chapters, we're going to ask that question, what kind of king should we want to follow? And the first answer we see in chapter 21 is we want to see the king Who finds refuge in God. We want to follow a king who finds refuge in God. Corey preached last week on uh, chapter 20 where we saw David and Jonathan and this covenant that Jonathan and David made together, how the Lord uses Jonathan to help David escape, encourage his hand as he goes out, how he is loyal to David even above his father Saul. So as we get to chapter 21, David has escaped and he's gone to the city of Nob, a city where the priests live. And this priest, Ahimelech, comes out to meet David and it says that he comes out trembling to meet David. He, he, he sees David, who is a commander of armies, like one of the most revered people in the kingdom. And usually he's leading a host of soldiers, but he's actually walking to Nob by himself or maybe only with just a few men. So he comes out and says, why, why are you coming here by yourself? And in response to that, David gives this deception in verse two of chapter 21, David says to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Uh, this is what we call like a well-intentioned deception. Okay, I don't think that David is trying to just play games. I think that he is likely trying to save Ahimelech's life in some ways. He's trying to give Ahimelech plausible deniability. You know, if somebody comes, if Saul comes later and says, Hey, what about this thing? Ahimelech now can tell the truth and say, Well, I thought that you were sending David on this mission. We'll find out later as you've heard read that that's kind of deception does not work. This visit and deception doesn't really turn out like David wants it to. But David says, This is this is why I'm here. I'm here because I'm on this top secret mission, so you can't ask me any questions. And he says, I need some provisions for me, for the men who are with me, Ahimelech. He doesn't have anything, he's a priest, not a baker, uh, but he's got this holy bread in the tabernacle. This is the bread of the presence that is there before the priests. It's put in there every Sabbath day for stays in there for a week. There's twelve loaves of it. And we're told that it's really intended to be eaten by the priests and the priests alone. But Ahimelech says, you know, you can you can take this if your men are clean. And so David does. Uh there's a future sermon, probably, and maybe a sermon that's already been preached here, because Jesus actually looks back on this. And if you say, Well, should have should Ahimelech have done that? Given this holy bread to David to his men. Jesus looks back and says, yes. So that's Mark chapter 2, that's Matthew chapter 12, if you want to go look at that this afternoon and see what Jesus does here. But Jesus says that Ahimelech prioritized, he showed mercy over sacrifice. He does what's right. And then what? it's almost like uh, you've seen a movie before where you're following a scene and then the camera just really briefly kind of turns over to this guy sitting over in the corner and you think, well, that's a weird thing to do with that camera scene, but I'll pay attention to that. That's what happens in verse 7 of chapter 21. It's almost like Ahimelech is going to get the bread, and then out of the corner of our eye, verse 7 says, A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. It's like this foreboding, he doesn't come into chapter, that's his only name, only time he comes here in chapter 21, the first time we've met him. But the camera pans back to David who says, okay, I've got food. Uh, you know, this secret mission, it was so important and so quick, I actually even forgot my sword. You got anything here that would work for that? And Himalus says, well, actually I do. It's the sword of Goliath that's hidden there in the sanctuary in Nob. So David takes this weapon that the last time he held, he used it to cut off Goliath's head and he goes on his way. That's the, the first little vignette, the first story in chapter 21. And this next story is one that is honestly peculiar and baffles commentators and sometimes pastors alike. Look at verse 10 and you'll see what David decides to do next. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. All right, kids, youth. There has been one other character already in the book of 1 Samuel who is from Gath. Does anybody remember who's from Gath? Raise your hand if you know. Betsy. Goliath. Goliath the giant is from Gath. And so now David is in Philistine territory in Goliath's hometown. And what is he carrying with him? But the sword of Goliath it's it's a little befuddling but but it seems that david just that the circumstances in david's mind have gotten so dire that saul is so set on his destruction that he thinks you know it's better for me to find shelter in gath and i can maybe hire myself out as a mercenary or something like that maybe they'll take me in and i'll find shelter there but uh, if, if Achish doesn't recognize David immediately, all the people around him, they know exactly who David is. And so they say, you've heard that, that uh, Israeli hit, David, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands, right? It's about that guy, that one who just walked in here. And those ten thousands are not just like some people out there, they're like our brothers and our cousins and our kinsmen. That's who he's been killing with those ten thousands. So Akish, who may have been really happy to have a mercenary, he, he he doesn't want this guy now. And David actually changed his tactics. He says David, when he realizes that he is outed, that people know who he is, he changes tactics. Verse 13 says, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So Akish says, you know what, I've got enough crazy guys here. I don't need another one, and sends David on his way. Those are the two stories. That's what you got. Those two kind of weird, peculiar stories here. And you may hear them and say, what do I do with this? Because I asked that question this week as well. What do we do with this kind of text? And thankfully, the Bible helps us here. Bible gives us some help in thinking what we do with this. Because David later reflects back on this escape from Gath. And he writes one psalm that we read already. So Psalm 34 is in response to this, his escape from Gath. And then he actually pens a second psalm, Psalm 56, which you'll find just a portion there on your notes. Listen to David kind of reflecting back on what God has done, what, what happened in this instance. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And then verse 13. You have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. Here's what I find encouraging in these, these couple of stories and in these psalms reflecting on it, what I think we're meant to take from this. David, so frequently, is an example for us, an example of courage. Someone that we say, like, we want to follow in his footsteps, but here in these couple of places, it seems like he is so desperate that he doesn't know where to turn. Maybe he slips some from the high pedestal in our mind. We see perhaps some cracks that he's not perfect. He he deceives Ahimelech, and it may be a well-intentioned deception. But if you heard Becca read the end of that section, David actually says, you know what, I am in part responsible for the deaths of the priests at Nob. Fleeing Gath may seem like a moment of desperation and and maybe even stupidity. It's like David's desperation has led him to the limit of his wisdom. I'm at the end and I'm not sure where else to go. But in all of that, even at the very edge of his own wisdom, God rescues David. God rescues David. And the reason that God rescues David... Is not because David is really smart. And not because David is really, really strong or powerful. God rescues David because of his grace. And not because of David's greatness. And when David sees that, when he recognizes, I was saved from this king who I ran to for refuge. And really God is the one who has delivered me from this. He bursts out in praise. This is the kind of kingdom that God is building, a place where people belong, not because they are awesome or you are awesome, but because God is gracious. David, like you and I, has done nothing to earn his way into the kingdom. And honestly, if you find David like unsympathetic in some other places, if you feel like David's way too brave and I'm not, this might be the most sympathetic David you can find here. I'm willing to bet that you have found yourselves in a place so desperate that you've acted not out of utter wickedness, but maybe at the very limit of your wisdom. And God is gracious even then. We can recognize God's mercy to us even then. And when we recognize that, we can't help but proclaim the words of David, in God whose word I praise, not in me, but in God I trust. What can flesh do to me? Friends, what kind of king do you want to follow? What kind of kingdom do we want to live in? We want to live in a kingdom where people are entering in by grace and where we, re- we respond in praise as we find refuge in this God. That's the first, first characteristic in chapter 21 and in those Psalms that you see. Second characteristic of a king that we want to follow. We want to follow the king who associates with the lowly. We want to follow the king who associates with the lowly. This is the, the shortest section, just two verses. I'm just going to read these again to remind you what's there in these two beautiful verses. First Samuel 22, 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father 's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about four hundred men. I said this this passage, these couple chapters are a strong contrast and Saul and David uh, there's actually it 's not here in this text, but earlier. In 1 Samuel 14.52, so this isn't on your notes, but it's First 1 Samuel 14.52, we get this passing reference of Saul and kind of the kind of people that Saul wants around him. First okay, 1 Kings 14.52 says, When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Okay, Saul is going around and he is constantly looking for people that he can use. People who will do him good in his kingdom. And it looks like here in 1 Samuel 22 that a lot of those people who have been used by Saul. Who have been abused by Saul. And who find that Saul was not the king that they wanted. Those people have been coming to David. Friend, I, I don't know what may be going on in your life. But I am willing to bet that some of you today feel like. These people gathering to David. Like you have been used and maybe even abused. You you read these words of the people coming there. All these people in distress. Those who are bitter in soul. And you say, I identify most in this story with them. If I were picked for the kickball team, I'd be last. If somebody's looking over my resume, they would never call me back. And maybe you wonder if anybody would ever choose you. Anybody would ever let you in. Maybe more than that, you would say, maybe there's some people who would endure my presence. And that would be a kindness. But is there anybody? Is there anybody who wouldn't just endure me being around them, but would actually welcome me in and love you being in their presence? And that is the kind of king that David shows us. That ultimately King Jesus is. Remember the kind of kingdom that Jesus is building and what his he's accused of by all of these people. The the ones who are gathering around him. It is not the people who are mighty and powerful. It is not the scribes and the Pharisees. It is tax collectors. It is prostitutes. It is the lowly and despised who he gathers around as his own kingdom. I came across this greeting from Pastor Ray Ortland several years ago. It's used by several churches, and it may just show up one Sunday here at Philadelphia because it is beautiful. But listen to this kind of welcome that I think is embodying this very passage. To all who are weary and in need of rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel lost and worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who fail and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, the lover of his enemies, the defender of the weak, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Uh, From what kind of king do you want to belong to? You want to belong to that kind of king. That kind of king who welcomes in the lowly and the downcast. And church, brothers and sisters, that's the kind of kingdom that God has in store for us in eternity. And it should remind you and I just right now that, again, we come here by grace. If you think lowly and you think other people, think of yourself first. God welcomes us in even we, though we have nothing to commend ourselves to him. In that same vein, as, as we say, this is the kingdom that God is building in all of eternity. This church is meant to be an embassy of that kingdom. And my prayer is that God would bring people here to this place in your lives and in my lives who are refugees from other gods. Who are refugees from other idols that they have tried to worship and who have left them wanting. Who have been used and abused by people who say, I want you until you're no longer useful for me. And church, we're meant to be the place where those people come and find welcome. And find life. We want to follow a king who shows that. Who shows us the way to build that kind of kingdom. And who is building that kingdom in his son, Jesus. Alright, third characteristic of the king that we want to follow. We want a king, not just who associates with the lowly, but a king who protects life. The king who protects life. Uh, this, this section here has three stories. Two of them you've already heard. One is the beginning of chapter 23. And it's like bookended by King David with uh, two pretty quick stories on either end, and then a longer story in the middle about King Saul. And it is probably the place, it is the place, where you see most starkly the contrast between King David and King Saul. So in 22, 3 through 5, David takes a lengthy journey to Moab. It's outside the territory of Israel. Uh, he's tired of life on the run. He's, it's not just tired of that, he wants to protect his parents. His parents, who... It could be used as leverage by King Saul have come to him. And he takes them to Moab for safekeeping. We're going to talk more about that story here in just a few moments about why he might go there. But the bulk of this text covers what I think is pretty clearly Saul's most despicable act as king. So in Saul's opening speech in verses 7 and 8, he, he is a petty, small tyrant. Everybody's against me. Nobody tells me what's going on in my own kingdom. It's like he has been feeding himself on conspiracy theories for months on end. And now he says, even he, he talks about David in ways that are just blatantly not true. In verse 8 he says, he lies in wait for me. My enemy is lying in wait for me. And then we see that familiar face that we saw in chapter 21. The one who we saw at the corner of our eyes sitting in the city of Nob. Saul says, nobody's telling me any of things going on. And Doeg the Edomite actually speaks in verses 9 and 10. And he just feeds all of the conspiracy theories that Saul has been feeding himself. He puts gasoline on that fire. He says, you know what? I was actually in the city of Nob and I saw there a And he, if, if I'm not mistaken, it looked almost like he was getting David ready for war. Think about the three things that That Doeg tells him, I saw Ahimelech inquire of God for David. Which is something you've seen previously. That's something that David and Saul himself even try to inquire of God before they go to war. And Doeg says, you know, I saw Ahimelech give him provisions. Not just holy bread, but bread for his men. And then this this last thing, it it was really curious, but he pulled out the sword of Goliath. And gave it to David. I don't know what that's about, but I don't know. And Saul has heard that and he, all the, all the things he's been telling himself. David is against me. He's the one who is my enemy. It's all fed and now he has already passed judgment on Ahimelech in his own mind as well. So he calls not just Ahimelech, but all of the priest to him. And accuses them of conspiring with David, saying, you have been aiding and abetting this man as he's trying to undermine me. And Ahimelech says, I, listen, David, David, David's that guy who's like, faithful, lead your armies. Is there any servant like David? And, and even if I, if he was running away from you, this is the first I've ever heard of that. But Saul has heard, heard everything that he needs to. And he quickly passes judgment and turns to his guards and say, says, kill the priests. And when those servants following Saul rightly, maybe even bravely, refuse to stand up, uh, refuse to take the sword and execute the priests, it's again Doeg the Edomite who turns and kills 85 priests that day. And then we're actually told it's not that just that Doeg kills the priests, But he actually goes to the city of Nob, and there he puts them under the ban, meaning he dedicates them to destruction. Men, women, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. From the city of Nob, there is one single escapee, a man named Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech. And like all of the other people who have been used by Saul and who have escaped, so here Abiathar runs to David and is given safekeeping there. In this last story in chapter 23 verses 1 through 5. The, we shift back to David. David has gone to the city of Keilah. And he hears the city of Keilah is being attacked by Philistines. The Philistines are raiding the threshing floors. Kind of taking their food. Going away. And David says should I Lord God. Should I go deliver this city from the Philistines? And twice he's told, yes, go deliver. The Lord promises he'll give victory. So in 23, verse 5, we're told that David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah, this Israelite city. I hope in those three stories, I think they're intentional in having David on the outside and Saul in the middle. So over and over, you just see this contrast. Saul, all of Saul's servants, like all of his servants are alienated from him. They won't carry out his direct orders other than this one guy. And even his family, if you think back a few chapters, remember Jonathan, Michael, his son, his daughter, they're giving help to David. And David has his own family gathering to him for safekeeping. Saul, in this chapter, Saul is responsible for the destruction of an entire city belonging to God's people. And what's maybe the saddest irony here is, remember, in 1 Samuel 15, if you remember, Saul was actually rejected because he refused to destroy a different city. God told him to destroy the city of Amalek, the people of Amalek. But Saul said, you know what, I don't really need to listen to the instructions of God there. And God said, you're rejected because of that. But here Saul has no problem putting this Israelite city totally to death. And David, on the other hand, we're told, is saving God's people. He's fighting for them. Saul's very last words to Ahimelech, the priest he eventually has killed, is, You shall surely die. And David's last words to Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, is, With me you shall be in safe keeping." Friends, there are two kings and two kingdoms that are being presented here. There is a kingdom of life, and there is a kingdom of death. And the kingdom of Christ, friends, the kingdom that David builds, that Jesus builds after him, is a kingdom that preserves, protects, and promotes life. And I mean that in a very expansive kind of sense. So in saying that we want a king who preserves life, I mean that we want a king who fights for the vulnerable, who actually sacrifices in order to provide for others, even at great personal cost. This is taken from our statement of faith. You'll find this on our notes. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, And the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. That's what we confess is true and what this church believes. And we don't say that because we want to be in a certain party of voters. We say that because we believe that's what comes out and off the pages of scripture. That God builds a kingdom of life that protects life. And that we want a king who leads us in that. We're also so we we believe that we should be a kingdom that promotes life. We're also saying if this is a king who builds life, a kingdom of life, we mean that it promises abundant life today. We read earlier from John chapter 10, and this is uh, just a portion of John 10.10. This is from the ESV study Bible. I found this just helpful in thinking about the abundant life that Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls his followers not to a dour, lifeless, miserable existence that squashes human potential, but to a rich, full, joyful life, one overflowing with meaningful activities under the personal favor and blessing of God. And in continual fellowship with his people. Friends, the Christian life, you can come to our study on 1 Peter on Wednesday nights. You'll find the Christian life is not easy. It's sacrificial. It involves suffering. But it does not squash joy. And actually, in promising that we're following this king, we're promised that we find joy there. It's not that we are just grinning and trying to bear it and burying our joy under uh, what we have now we have joy now and greater joy held out which is the third thing we mean by Jesus is building a kingdom of life we mean that there is a kind of life that is not just abundant life today but eternal life forever that there is a kingdom that promises eternal life and only one kingdom like that that is who King David and ultimately King Jesus holds out for us. A kingdom filled with life. And in the other side, I think what we find in Saul is the unmasking of every other king that would set itself up against Christ and his kingdom. Saul has promised. Saul has said that he, would be, he, he was asked for to be one that would protect his people. And here he is killing them. You may find kings who promise life and promise protection and joy and happiness, but in the end, they will eat you alive. There's this quote on your note sheet from a man named David Foster Wallace. He was a prominent author before his death in 2008. He is not a Christian, by the way, but but I think he actually understands some of This Listen to this quote. There's there's uh, a portion I'll start. This is not on your notes, and then I'll tell you when you jump in on your notes. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then this is on your notes there. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. You will need need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay, which sounds a lot like Saul. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Wallace here is at least half right, though he's also half wrong. He's right. If you want to elevate anything, money, beauty, power, intellect, if you want to elevate that to the center of your life, it will not just let you down, It will destroy you. He's also half wrong. He says you just find any kind of God. Friends, you go read about the other gods. The Bible and, and I think human experience actually plays out that all the other gods will eat you alive as well. There is one true God who does not consume his followers but who actually gives to them. Who does not take but gives. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. From what kind of king do you want to follow? You want to follow the king who gives and who protects life. Fourth characteristic, and these two will move pretty quickly. Fourth, you want the king who is in control. And I'll, I'll be upfront right now. I'm not talking about David. Read the story David knows he is not in control. I'm not talking about Saul either, though. Because Saul actually may think he is in control, but is most definitely not. I'm hopefully backing the camera up and saying there is a king of kings who we see is ultimately in charge of everything happening in this story and beyond it. So in chapter 23, Saul hears David is in Keilah, and he thinks, you know what, he's in the city, it's got gates and bars And that's meant to provide protection for the people in the city. But Saul says that means he's trapped inside there. David gets wind of that and he inquires of the Lord again and says, Am uh, am I, is Saul coming to get me? The Lord says, yes. And he says, are the people of Keilah who I just saved, are they going to give me up to Saul? And apparently the people of Keilah had heard the story about what happened at Nob because the Lord says, yes, they would give you up. And so David escapes before Saul can get to the city. Uh, But the key to David's success, if you think like he, I want to learn his way of inquiring of the Lord so I can know the future, we're told that's not the case. It's not that he has access to the future. It's not that he has any sort of great technique. At the end of verse 14, you're told why David is safe. Saul sought him every day. It's the one thing on Saul's mind. I want to get David, but this last phrase, God did not give him into his hand. God did not give him into his hand. And then once again, we we get in here just kind of a breath of fresh air. If you're tired of Saul like I am, every time you see Jonathan, it's just like, oh, yeah, I want some Jonathan story. So here's a little Jonathan story. It's a few verses. That's all it is. But it's encouragement to David. I love even just at the end of verse 16, it says, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. And he does that by means of reminding David of the promise that God had made. Verse 17, he tells David, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. These three little stories right here, these uh, three chapters rather, they, they tell us over and over about the contrast between Saul and David, but they are ultimately lifting our eyes to say there is a greater king in charge of what's happening here. It's not just David. There's a God, the only God, who is protecting David from Saul, who one day will set David on his throne. And and I would say, even just back the camera out This God is not just in charge of David's story to keep him safe. He's in charge of all of history. Think back to uh, what we said at the beginning of chapter 22. David takes his parents and takes them to Moab, which is not a place that you would normally... They're they're not on friendly terms all that much. But do you remember who David's great-grandmother is? It's it's Ruth, the Moabitess, the one from Moab. Moab. So David's parents come back and they, they may see people they even know, have heard about. God has provided protection for David's parents. God has shown mercy and he's sovereign over that mercy, but he's also sovereign over judgment. You may remember back in chapter two and three, so several weeks back, the priest Eli was polluting the temple and God sent a, a prophet there to say because of what's happening the way in which you're treating my sacrifices and profaning my name you're going to be judged this is first samuel 2 31 through 33 behold the days are coming when i shall cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house and then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Friends, that just came true in chapter 22 down to the detail. Ahimelech is the son, the grandson of Eli, the priest. And the Lord is sovereign even in judgment. Even the the verse 33 of chapter 2. Only one of you I shall not cut, not cut off as Abiathar, the one single priest who escapes to David. God is sovereign over mercy and over judgment. And friends, I know that the idea of sovereignty may come with questions. I'm happy to talk with you if you have those questions. But, but this is meant for David and for you, God's people, as a comfort. God means his sovereignty to be a comfort to us. If we have a God who is sovereign, then we can know for certain that every promise that he has made is not like a promise that I make to my kids. That is, I hope that I can do this and I'm going to do my very best. It is that it will for certain come to pass. There is nothing that stays his hand. Because God is sovereign, those who belong to him. Can be promised even in this circumstance like David, even in the worst moments, we're told that God is working for our good and his glory. And that is only possible if he is in control. Because God is sovereign, he can protect and defend his people as he does David. And because God is sovereign, he will bring judgment to those who we fear might escape it. I'm, I'm struck even like Doeg, this is the last thing you ever hear about Doeg in the Bible. It may feel like he gets away with murder, with genocide. But we know that the Lord is sovereign. And perhaps he turns to the Lord in his later years. And his sins are cast upon Jesus just as yours and mine are. But if not, we know that the Lord is the one who takes vengeance. We don't worry about that. We know that God is the one who gives mercy and shows judgment. What kind of king should we follow? We should follow the king who is in control of all things. Finally, we should follow the king who is saved from death. So at Ziph, the people of uh, the people go to Saul. This is where uh, David has escaped to the city of Ziph, and now it's like it's even worse. The people of Ziph, like they actively go to Saul and say, "We know where David is, and we want to give him up to you." So Saul comes and pursues him, and there's this story where they're on two sides of a mountain. Saul is on one side, David's on another. It looks like it's going to be the end of David. And at the very last moment, Saul is told that there's a raid of the Philistines and it's like he remembers, I have an actual enemy instead of this pretend enemy. So he has to go and leave David alone. And if you're paying attention to the story, we know that that Philistine raid is part of God's sovereignty as well. And David here again reflects on this deliverance. Psalm 54 is written in response to his escape here. You'll see just the beginning and end of this on your note sheet. Oh God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. And then he closes in verse 7 with a word of praise to God. He has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Over and over again, David is saved by God. Friends, you want a king who is delivered from every trial, who is saved from death itself. So that's a lot of good criteria for a king. And again, you you will and a year-ish, go to make choices about a president, or maybe even before then about local officials. And for things like that, you're always, almost always at least, making compromises. You say, here's one thing I like about this guy, and here's a list of things I don't like about this guy, and you can do that down the list of every candidate that's on the ballot. And here with these five things, you may say, I've gotta prioritize. I'm gonna pick one of these, and some others I've gotta, I've just gotta compromise. And the good news of the Bible is that there is a king who fits all of these criteria. This is pointing us to King Jesus. He's the king who perfectly entrusts himself to God and finds refuge in him. Do you remember at the, at the cross, the very last moments of his life, he looks to heaven and says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. There is a king who associates perfect with the lowly, who starts a kingdom with a group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, the outcasts from the other kingdoms of the world and who today still welcomes the weak and the wounded. There is a king who protects life at great personal cost. He he protects life to the fullest so much that he gives of his own life to save those who will come to him. And there is one king. And only one king who is perfectly in control, who never, ever has been caught off guard, who is always able to keep his promises. And there is one king, and only one king, who has been saved from death. And this king, Jesus, now sits enthroned above you and me as the resurrected Lord of all. And today, friends, he asks you, for the first time perhaps, and maybe for the thousandth time, Which king will you follow? Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the king above all kings. the one in whom we perfectly trust. And we ask, Lord, today that you would... You would help us desire for your kingdom to come quickly. Lord, help this church to be an embassy of that king and his kingdom. Help us as we build, as you are building your kingdom, that we would look more and more like who you are making us to be in eternity. We love you, Lord. And we pray this and ask this all in the name of the King of Kings. Amen. If you would, let's stand and continue.